0: So today, we are reading a classic text, like, in some ways, the classic text. This is the text that you're going to put on a coffee mug. This is a text that you're going to frame and hang on your wall. Like, literally, if you walk in our front door and you look up, this is what you see. Philippians 4, 8. Like, this is, this is the stuff that where they're gonna take this picture and they're gonna chalk it out on some beautiful chalkboard and write this note. This is the picture that they're gonna lay over some exotic landscape or, or something. That's terrible. But you get the idea. You're gonna share this one on Instagram. In fact, this passage that we're talking about today, Philippians chapter four, and if you take it from four, four, all the way to four, thirteen, is the most quoted chapter in all of the Bible. You ask me how I know that? Well, we have stats from UVersion Bible Online. You know, three of the top ten verses in the Bible that were quoted or tweeted last year were from Philippians chapter 4. Three of the top ten. In America, the number one bookmarked, read, quoted verse in the Bible is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. So we are going to look at this, this passage that is, is beautiful and it's inspirational. And like, you don't need to know anything about the Apostle Paul or about Philippi or, or ancient Greek to sit there and have this immediate, powerful experience with this text. We love this text as a people, as a church, as a nation. This is a beautiful text. And in some ways, I don't even really want to mess up this text. Oh, this is my favorite one. I don't necessarily want to mess up this text by over explaining it, right? Like, do you need someone really to explain to you, do not be anxious for anything, or do you need to live it? So in some ways, I don't want to do that. Some ways, I want today to just be a reflection. I want us to taste it and see it, but but I'm a little afraid that if we leave it at this level, we might think of this passage as just written by some blogger sitting in Starbucks pumping out like inspirational quotes, and this text was not born in Starbucks. This text was written by a man on death row to a people who are suffering. This text is written to people who have the, the real possibility of losing everything because they've chosen to follow Jesus Christ. It is born in suffering and bitterness and a lot of very legitimate reasons to worry And so I I don't want to take away from this, and I want you all to go out and make your own Instagram picture when we leave today. But I want to go deeper. You see, the Apostle Paul in this text is pleading with them, don't let the world steal your joy. They're going to try and do it. They're going to try and steal it. But you rejoice. And don't let their insults and their violence, don't let it turn your heart to revenge because they are going to insult you and they are going to get violent. But don't you do it. You be gentle. And don't let all those broken pieces of life stop you from seeing the great wholeness that you have in Jesus Christ, from experiencing the peace of God. All right. So watch this. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, the first thing that obviously just stands out to you is that this is not a suggestion. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And if you didn't get it, he's going to repeat himself. And I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, this is a fantastic idea that we would all... Like, you read that and you're like, how can you not agree with that? That's great. And yet, it is terribly difficult to live out. So, six years ago, it was a Thursday night. And the reason I know it was a Thursday night is because we had our deacon meetings on Thursday night. And I was at a church in Dallas... And deacon meetings is this business meeting of the church. So we're sitting there in the middle of like discussing like which type of light bulbs we should buy and, and which contractor we should use to fix the roof and looking at budgets and things. And I'm getting ready to present like some staff stuff. I was the liaison to this deacon board of this big church in Dallas. And so sitting there in the middle of the meeting, uh, my phone rings and I pull it out and it's like Jenny's calling me. I had one of those old flip phone things. And uh, at the time, it was cool. And so I'm like, why is Jenny calling me? Like, she would never, she knows I'm in the middle of a meeting. And so I, I th- think this is odd. So I grab it and I walk out to the side door and I'm like, hello, you know I'm in the middle of a meeting. Is this urgent? And she can't even talk. Um, through the stuff that she's spitting out and trying to say, I get that Jillian, my one year old, not even one, Year old daughter at the time had had a seizure and was unresponsive, and something about paramedics, and something about calling 911, and something about they're going in an ambulance to Children's Hospital, and I gotta go, but you should come. And so I go from the middle of that meeting, and my heart just dropped. And I'm in the car driving to Children's Hospital down this big highway in Dallas, and there's traffic everywhere, and my mind starts going to the worst possible places. Like, in my experience, the only children I knew that had had seizures was uh, a family friend, and he had had a seizure when he was an infant, and he never developed properly. He never got beyond a three-year-old level ever. And so my mind is going to the worst possible places of what if and what if and what does this mean? And I'm in the, stuck in traffic and there's, all I know is that my wife and daughter are in an ambulance headed down to the hospital. Rejoice in the Lord always. See, the problem with this text is that always means that you're supposed to rejoice in the Lord on the day that you get that phone call when it's your daughter in an ambulance to the hospital and you don't know how it's going to turn out? And the question that we have to ask is, how do you do that? Like, how do you rejoice in the Lord? Like, I know how to rejoice in the Lord when things are good, when you're at church and it's Mother's Day and we're going to go out to eat and this is great today and I got a pink shirt on. I know how to do that. But how do you rejoice in the Lord when you're following an ambulance to the hospital? Okay, so I've heard Christians since I grew up in church, I don't know what your experience is, I grew up in church, and since I was just a little bitty baby, I've always heard Christians say, you know, there's this vast difference between the feeling of happiness and, and the resolve or the state of the soul of joy. And I'm like, okay. Ha- feeling of happiness, joy. And I'm like, are, are we not supposed to ever feel joy? Is joy not a feeling? Like, to be honest, the the linguist in me kind of gets really uncomfortable when we start dividing up happiness and joy. You know why? Because I've studied enough Greek and Hebrew to know, you know, when Jesus says, be happy, and when Paul commands us to rejoice, there is almost no difference in the way they use those two words. Almost none. So when people start saying that joy is never something that you feel, It starts to sound more like something that's stoic or something that's Victorian than it sounds like the Apostle Paul or Jesus or King David in the scriptures. If we mean by the fact that joy is not the same as happiness, if we mean by that that joy is not just like cotton candy and smiling all the time, then okay, I'm okay with that. Joy can't mean that. In fact, when you read the Apostle Paul, whatever he means by rejoicing, it can't mean life without hardships. Like it can't mean that life is always happy and always successful, and you're always up and to the right, that your kids are always above average and always on the honor roll and always good looking and always healthy. It can't mean that. It just it can't. You know why? Because just uh, one chapter earlier, the apostle Paul talks about how I want to share in the the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I want that. What? Why would you want to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Because he says that's the way of resurrection. That's the way of joy. Like the Apostle Paul and Jesus, they seem to think that the most direct way to joy is often suffering, self-denial, a cross. So it's like having a baby. I've never had one, but I hear, um, I hear that it's painful thanks mom if you're listening um so here's the thing there is a great joy of of having a child right it's in some ways an indescribable joy it's a gift but the way to that joy is labor and pain and suffering And what the Apostle Paul seems to be saying in all of the rest of his writings, and here certainly, is that the way to joy is often the most direct way to joy. And I would say even a feeling of joy, the full orb, deepest joy, is through suffering. So what is joy? If it's not just a feeling, it's not just feeling tingly, it's not cotton candy and smiles. We need to talk for a minute. Etymology. You guys know what etymology is? It's the study of the origin and relationship of words. So, let's let's be technical here. This is a foot, and this is a ball. All right. So we know from from history that sometime, oh, around eight hundred BC. In middle America, these uh, pre-Columbian people started kicking a ball with their foot, and they called that game football. So this explains a lot of things. First of all, it explains that if you want to know why America stinks at soccer, it's because they've been playing it for you know 1500 years prior to the, uh, us even existing the other thing that this explains is that when you come to America and and pe- everyone else in the world talks about a game that is played with your foot and a ball they call it football but in America you call it soccer this right here breaks off the connection there's there's a etymological and logical connection between foot and ball, and football. But when you come to soccer, soccer is a meaningless word that we're not quite sure what to do with, right? Right. Same thing happens when we come to the word rejoice, when we come to joy, that there's a connection in the Greek that is obvious to any native speaker, but to us, we're like, I don't get it. And so in Greek, you have this word, you know what this is? This is the big fat gift that you just bought for your mom, Are you better of... Stores are still open, so you still have a chance. So it's a gift. And this word for gift is karen, right? It's a gift. But what happens when someone gives you a gift? Well, for some people, they get this unexpected gift, and they're like, oh, my. And you know what we call that in Greek? We call that "charis" or grace. But some people, they get a gift and the result of that is like this, like, I've been given a gift. The result of that is, is a big fat smile and they're so happy, maybe not happy, but they would call this Kara joy. And you know what? If you follow this along, if you get an unexpected gift of grace, you know what we call that? A, a, a good gift. We call it Eucharist, a cup. And bread is the symbol of that for us. Eucharist, it just means thankfulness. Eucharisto, good gift. And if you take this word, a gift that's unexpected and, and creates this, this thing in you called joy, kara, we call that karetai, which is to rejoice. You see, in Greek, there is a logical and etymological connection between gift and grace and joy and thankfulness. Like, all of these go together. If you say one, it immediately brings up all the rest, like foot and ball. Football. Joy is logically and etymologically connected to gift. And what's my point here? For the Apostle Paul, may I suggest to you, that joy is nothing less... Than recognizing gift. That viewing life as gift. So, when I was in Dallas, I had a friend named Tony. And Tony uh, had spent most of his life smoking and was now actually a major proponent of not smoking, you know, like stop smoking. And um, he, when he was in his 50s, basically both of his lungs stopped working. And he had a uh, lung transplant. One, the other one was basically useless. And when that happened, he had to basically relearn how to breathe, literally. Like he had to slow down, learn how to take deeper breaths to get enough oxygen. Like if he didn't breathe properly, it would literally start suffocating. So so he would come in every Sunday morning. He'd come into my Sunday school class, and uh, the one that I taught, and he would come in and He would shuffle him because he couldn't really walk that well. He had his on his oxygen line. And he'd greet me with a big smile sounding like Darth Vader. And I'd say, Tony, how are you, man? And you know what he said every single time? God is good. Any day that I'm breathing is good. And he meant it. If there's anyone in the world who had reason to give up on life and turn bitter, it was Tony. He was one of the most joy-filled men I've ever met because he was conscious that every single breath he took was literally a gift from God. Last year, Tony uh, went home to be with the Lord, and that's actually great news for him. Like, not suffocated anymore. But for me, that's kind of tough because I need a Tony in my life. I need someone in my life to remind me that every breath I take is a gift from God. I need someone to remind me that my house and my joy and my job and my daughter is a gift from God. And that the one who gave me the gift is someone that I can trust Always. Always, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now this, I don't know how you guys are. When I read the word gentleness, I don't know. It just doesn't, it's not something that I usually look for in life. It's not like, oh, my top virtue is I would like to be known as the gentleman. So what does it look like? When is gentleness truly a virtue? Like in order to understand this passage, we have to, what is he talking about, gentleness? So let me give you an image. When, when I come home in the evenings, it's about 5.30, I pull into the garage, and I promise you, as soon as I open my car door, you know what I hear? I hear little shouts, and then I hear its little feet. And I know that the moment I open that garage door into our house, that there is a seven-year-old little girl and a five-year-old little boy plotting to tackle this old man. Like at any moment, one might jump on my head or tackle my legs. And let me tell you, when I'm wrestling my kids, when a dad is wrestling his children, that is a time when gentleness is a virtue. So could I, if I wanted to, could I, when that happens, could I drop kick my daughter in the face and take my son and throw him against the wall? I could. I am stronger than them. This is possible, right? But that is not a virtue. It is never a virtue to dropkick a small child in the face. (laughs) All right? Now, why is that? We can expand on this a little. Let's extend this. Why is beating small children up not a good thing? Even if they deserve it. Because there is no virtue in someone who is strong and powerful coming after someone who is weak and powerless. Right? So this is why we abhor bullies. This is why we hate tyrants. This is why we do not respect CEOs who step all over the little guys. Right? Because there is no virtue in someone who is strong and powerful coming after someone who is weak and powerless. And when you know that you are stronger than someone else, when you know that you are in a position of power, that is when gentleness is a virtue. So there's a line, ancient Jewish uh, text, that kind of kind of captures this, this virtue of gentleness, I think, in a way that no other text does. It's from Wisdom of Solomon, which is um, about the time of the New Testament, a little before that. And it says this, this is um, some evil men plotting to test this man to see whether he's truly a man of God or not. And they say this, let us test him with insults and torture so that we may find out his gentleness. Let's test his ability to endure pain. The, the, the gentleness in this context is patiently enduring pain and insults and injustice rather than giving them the beat down they deserve. The gentleness is not reacting and responding in violence. So here's the question. If someone insults you, if someone hurts you, How are you going to respond? Like this wasn't a hypothetical question for the Philippians because we know that in just a couple years from when Paul wrote this, the the Emperor Nero himself would, would start massive persecutions, that he would take Christians and he would literally light them up and make them into human torches for his parties, that he would literally feed them to the lions as entertainment. We know that thousands of Christians would die, including Peter and Paul. We know that tens of thousands lost everything. So here's the question. What are you going to do when your family disowns you? What are you going to do when your boss fires you? What are you going to do when the emperor threatens to kill you? What are you going to do? Are you going to come down to their level? And are you going to get violent? Are you going to pick up weapons? Are you going to go to war? Or are you going to be the stronger person? Will you be gentle? So Acts chapter 16 I don't know if you remember this story. This is where the, the story of the Philippian church begins. The apostle Paul, he shows up in Philippi for the first time. And what happens? The usual. He gets beaten and thrown in jail, right? So that first night, he's beaten, thrown in jail. And what, what's he doing then? He sits there in jail and it says about midnight, around verse 25 or something, Acts chapter 16, verse 25. It says about midnight, he starts singing and worshiping God. And then there's this giant earthquake and the doors to the jail cells open up and his chains fall off and here's his chance. You're like, Paul, get up and run. They're going to beat you. They're going to kill you. They're going to destroy you. Go. This is your chance to escape. But what does he do? He looks up and he sees the jailer, the very person who was in charge of beating him and having him thrown into jail. He sees the very one who, who hurt him getting ready to kill himself. And Paul, rather than going, running for his own freedom, he says, don't do it. We're all here. We're not going anywhere. Paul gives up his opportunity to escape so that he can save the very man who chained him up. He gives up his chance for revenge so that he can t- tell that jailer, you know what he's going to tell him? Life is a gift and you can know the giver. His name's Jesus. So, so tell me, in that situation, Paul and the jailer, who's more powerful? Who's more powerful? The, the one who has to have weapons and soldiers and who has to hurt people and who has to lock chains around people to control them, or the one who gets beaten and chained and is still singing? The one who gets beaten and chained and is still loving? Yeah, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness is responding to ugliness with beauty, to to injustice with kindness, to hate with love. And the passage ends like this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus do not be anxious about anything so this week studying through the text and the word anxious comes from a greek word that we would translate parts that the root word of anxious is parts and I don't know if that clicked anything for you, but for me, it really did. Like parts, that being anxious has something to do with focusing on the parts of something, all the little pieces of something, that it's the state of a mind, it's the state of a heart, in which life is not one whole complete thing, but it's broken up into a million little parts. It's, it's when you sit down and you say, yes, I'm going to spend time with God this morning. I'm setting aside time to read my Bible and pray, and you sit down, and what happens? Is it time to change the oil in my car yet? I wonder if Jenny took care of that bill. Do we even have money to take care of that bill? I wonder what she meant by that. Do you think he's mad at me? What happens if this happens? What about this? What about this? I wonder if my kid's going to do okay in their class. I wonder if they got in trouble today. I wonder if people are going to like my sermon. I wonder if people are going to fall asleep. And these Parts, these little parts just ping through your mind. Ping, 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 ping. And some, some of them can be really small and some of them can be huge. But here's the thing. These parts, these loose ends, these problems, these what-ifs, they ping around and around in our minds and our hearts and they're desperate for our attention. And each one might be a small part. But if you focus on that small part, you're going to lose perspective on the whole so uh, four years ago, I was happy. And by happy, I mean cotton candy and smiles. I was living in Dallas. Life was good. I had a good job. had lots of friends. I was known. I was liked. I was funnier. I was probably taller. <laughs> and life was good. And I just felt, you know, God saying now's the time. Now's the time. I'm like, time for what? Time for a party. Time to move. And that's when I went into that process and we started saying, okay, God, we're open. Where do you want to send us? Jenny and I prayed about it and we worked through it. And then finally found two churches that really looked like possibilities. Like we really might end up going to one of these churches. So we took one week and back-to-back weekends. We went to interview at these two churches. And, And let me tell you, interviewing at a church is like Dante's... Seventh level of hell. And I, I, nothing against, some of you interview me, and you, you guys are nice, you guys are nice people, but, but when you interview a pastor, it's not a, a normal professional interview. It's not about your skills and your experience. You know what it's about? It's about me. And everyone's looking at me. What's your prayer life like? Tell me about times you shared the gospel with people. How do you love your wife? Are you a good enough Christian to lead us? And so everyone in the church, at these two churches, is examining me. Is actually sitting down with my wife, asking if I'm a good husband or not. And after a couple weeks of that, I wanted to kill myself. (laughs) In all seriousness, for about a month after that, I would lie awake in the middle of the night and ask, what am I doing? Like, am I even qualified for this? what if this happens? What if I go there and it fails? What if I go there and, and they can't even pay the bills? What if I go there and it ruins my family life? What if I go there and I ruin the church? What if I go there and everything falls apart? And I mean, I had trouble breathing. Like literally, I had trouble breathing. I couldn't take a deep breath for like a month. Like there were times where I would, uh, I would have shooting legs in my pain. Or, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's how bad it was shooting legs in my pain it was terrible (laughs) terrible condition and i just to go to sleep at night i'd have to take melatonin by the handfuls i mean i would wake up at, at two and three in the morning and i would feel so much adrenaline pumping through my heart that i would get up and run for four or five miles in the middle of the night just so that i could hopefully burn off enough adrenaline to fall back asleep so when people talk about anxiety I know anxiety. I know what it means to feel anxious. And I'm telling you, if if the Apostle Paul or anyone had come up to me at that time, at that moment said, don't be anxious about anything, I would have punched him in the throat. (laughs) It's not helpful unless you take it the next step and say this. But in every situation and everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And I, I want you to see what Paul does here. He uses four different words. He jams like every word he knows for prayer and he puts it in there by prayer. This is like a formal prayer, like something you'd recite. This is like our Father who art in heaven. This is, this is when your words fail. So I'm just going to read this text. I'm just going to read it again and again and again until it aligns my heart. And by petition, you know what petition is? Petition is not like a formal prayer at all. It's not a thought out prayer. It's unscripted. It's like screaming out help. It's when you're driving behind an ambulance. And you might not even be able to say help. You are just God. You got to be here now. And with thanksgiving, that's, that's that, that response. And a lot of times this is, this pr- prayer of thanksgiving is a prayer of just, I don't even have words for it. I'm going to sing a song present your request to God. And this is a more formal petition. Now what's Paul doing here? Why is Paul saying that he takes every word he knows for prayer and he jams it in there so that you see prayers that are, are more formal and prayers that are just crying out and prayers that are songs and prayers that are, are pleading with God and begging Him again and again and again. May I suggest to you that maybe he's not trying to present an equation for dealing with the anxiety. Maybe it's not about how you pray at all. Maybe it's the fact that you're praying to God. Maybe it's not about how you pray, but maybe it's about the one to whom you're praying. The Apostle Paul is saying that when you're in times of anxiety, that you need to take everything, every anxious thought, every broken little part of your life, and you need to bring it to God again and again and again. That with every prayer, it's an act of faith that I will trust you with this broken piece. That I will trust you with this. I will trust you with my daughter. I will trust you with my job. I will trust you with my success or my failure. I will trust you in this. And how much do you need to pray during that time? Until you don't need to pray anymore. And how should you pray? However you want to. With every prayer, you're taking this broken piece and you're giving it to the one who can actually put everything back together. In fact, this is where Paul's taking the text right now. That there's a one who sees the whole. That there's one who can put everything in its right place. That there's one who can take a broken, mangled Messiah and make him resurrected and glorious. That there's one who can take a broken world, all the brokenness in the world, that there's nothing he can't undo. It's called resurrection that there's one who can bring all the pieces of life that steal your joy that lead you to revenge and he can make it whole again you know what the hebrew word for whole is wholeness shalom in english we say peace that when you take all the pieces of anxiety that are out there and you present them to God, He puts it together and the peace, the shalom, the wholeness of God, which transcends all understanding that won't even make sense that you can't even fathom how God could put this back together. It's going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So as we close today, I'm going to invite the band up. And here's what I want to do. I I don't want you to leave here. My, my point is not that you know everything about this text. I know some of you are going to go out and over lunch. You're going to be like, you know, there's an etymological connection between gift and karis and kara. And that's great. I think you guys should all know that. But my hope and my prayer today is more not that we would better know stuff about this text, but that we would better live this text, that we would experience it in its fullness. Here's what we're going to do. Van's band's going to start playing some music. And we're going to take a lesson from my friend Tony. The guy who had to relearn how to breathe. And what I want you to do is I want you to, with every single breath, I want you to be conscious of the fact. Recognize that that breath is a gift from God. I want to slow things down so that you can hear God, so that you can know that this life, that what He's doing, that the giver of that gift is here now. My prayer is that you taste and see the joy of the Lord, that it be your strength, that you'd find in Christ, you'd find a strength that allows you to be gentle to those who hurt you, gentle to those who insult you that in Christ that you'd have, even if it's just a moment, that you'd have a moment to take all the broken pieces of your life whatever's buzzing around in your heart and mind right now and you'd have a chance to present it to the Lord and for some of you you might have no words you might want to recite something in your mind our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name and some of you might be in a desperate place right now and you just need to cry out oh my god my god why have you forsaken me wherever you're at I want you to take those pieces and give it to God and here's what we're going to do as you breathe in I literally want you to slow down your breathing and as you breathe in say to yourself rejoice in the Lord that life is a gift and the giver is here now to breathe in grace. And as you breathe out, just say always, like always when when things are really, really good, always when things are falling to pieces, that you can always trust Him Always you can bring your broken parts to Him. Always He will be with you. If you would just close your eyes and let your breathing be your prayer. Rejoice in the Lord.